Hey, what's up everyone? It's Jeff from Modern Combat and Survival, and welcome to podcast episode number 240. Now, this week we take an in-depth look at the recent grid-down collapse in Venezuela to learn some hard lessons about what it really takes to survive when the lights go out and they stay out. Looting, chaos, literal starvation. These are all after-effects of a modern world without electricity, and it's a lot bigger threat to us here in the United States than you think. And I have just the person to join us today to help you prepare. But first, don't forget to grab this week's free show notes, including a handy-dandy cheat sheet covering all the main points we covered today. All you have to do is go on over to www.mcsmagazine.com 240 and download it all absolutely free. And now, let's talk tactics. Tactical firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. This, this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is Modern Combat and Survival. In March of 2019, the lights went out in Venezuela. Some said it was a CIA covert attack. Some said the acting ruler of the country sabotaged their own infrastructure on purpose. Others said it was just the chickens coming home to roost. Whatever the reason, the country, already suffering an economic collapse that has seen people turning to eating zoo animals in order to survive, was hit not by rolling blackouts and not by localized power outages, but by a complete nationwide collapse of their power grid. Chaos and violence have swallowed up all parts of the country, with fighting breaking out between the country's security forces and looters. And then the gangs got involved, taking over vulnerable neighborhoods and using knives and machetes to fight for the best garbage available as food and other resources continue to dwindle. In short, Venezuela has turned into something out of a post-apocalypse disaster movie. But this isn't a movie. It isn't the future. It's the here and now. And it's happening to real people who, not too long ago, lived in one of the richest countries in their region. If it can happen to them, then it can happen to us. And more easily than we'd like to think. And that's what we're here to prepare for right now. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Anderson, editor for Modern Combat Zero Magazine, executive director of the New World Patriot Alliance, with another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. And with me for this broadcast is someone who knows a thing or two about surviving a blackout and the devastating effects that one can have. Please welcome back Jonathan Hollerman. Jonathan, welcome back to the program, man. Jeff, good to be on. Always good to have your expertise here, especially for something like this. Listen, for those of you out there that haven't heard one of our other podcasts with Jonathan, or if you're not in the NWPA and seen one of our, our master classes that we've done, Jonathan is a former U.S. Air Force survival, evasion, resistance, and escape instructor, and an expert on survival and prepping. In fact, he's an emergency preparedness consultant specializing in survival retreat design, and he has experience ranging from numerous on-site retreat analysis projects all the way up to designing multi-million dollar fully off-grid survival retreat compounds. Now, Jonathan also offers expert preparedness consulting via phone consultation, and he's the author of several books on survival and preparedness. He's currently working on an instructional DVD, not to mention discussing possibilities for his own television series. Now, his research and work in the field of EMPs and blackouts and our vulnerable power infrastructure are really a specialty for him, and the exact reason why he was the only person I really wanted to reach out to for this very important topic. Now, to learn more about Jonathan and his training, make sure that you visit him online at his website at www.griddownconsulting.com. Okay, Jonathan, you and I have talked about blackouts before and, and how to survive in a real grid down scenario, um, but never really with the type of example that we have right before. So, like, this is a real 
clear opportunity with Venezuela's collapse for us to really see what life is like and then how to prepare for it. But I think a lot of people are listening to this that are looking at Venezuela on the news. They're, they're thinking, well, this is, this is a third world nation. You know, this isn't like us. They're, they're suffering these devastating outcomes because they have a terrible government in place. They've mismanaged their resources. And, you know, so most people are not thinking that they're going to be reduced to eating zoo animals for breakfast in the morning. But, you know, you're, you've, this is something that you've really put a lot of research into, um, into the vulnerabilities that we have. So the real question is, how vulnerable, how vulnerable are we to this type of a grid down collapse that could really have a, like a nationwide effect? We're extremely vulnerable. Uh, read the EMP commission report sometime. Uh, there's a reason why the EMP commission was disbanded here a year ago is because they were shouting from the rooftops that we are absolutely vulnerable. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a roundtable session with uh, with Senator Johnson. You can go on C-SPAN and, and take a look at that with industry experts from all sides of the industry, from cyber to uh, you know, the Electric, NERC, National Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, uh, Dr. Baker from the EMP Commission was there. And it's, uh, what are we, 15 years after the initial uh, EMP Commission report came out, warning Congress that this is America's Achilles heel and our American electric grid is completely unprotected. And 15 years later, we've still done nothing. Every, every single president has kicked the can down the road. Uh, Donald Trump on the campaign trail talked about hardening the electric grid, and unfortunately, we're a couple of years in now, and the, and the can still is getting kicked down the road. So personally, in my personal opinion, I don't believe it's ever going to get hardened. I don't think the electric grid is ever going to get hardened against a cyber uh, attack, an EMP attack, or a uh, solar flare. So I believe that your best, your best option is to prepare you and your family uh, yourself and don't rely on the government to fix the grid anytime soon. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, you, you and I have talked about this before and you really, um, you shocked me actually with a, like one of the, uh, the parts of the Achilles heel that our country has in that um, when our, when our big transformers, not those little tiny things you see out on the, on the, um, on the telephone poles and in front of our house or anything, but those major transformers are a weak link that we have resources wise. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, um, just if one of these big bad boys goes out, um, I, we know it can affect, you know, our, our interconnected, um, uh, infrastructure and our power grid, but we just slap another one in, right? There is no slapping another one in when it comes to high voltage transformers. Uh, they are 400 ton behemoths. There's anywhere between two and 3,000 of them across the continental United States. High voltage transformers step down massive amounts of electricity from the, uh, the power source, from the power plant, to usable loads that can be distributed uh, among the small towns across our country. So these high voltage transformers, you need them to step up. Uh, to, to transmit that power across long distances and to uh, basically at, at the opposite end, you need a high voltage transformer to distribute that load. So the problem is, like I said, they're 400 ton behemoths. They take anywhere between 12 and 18 months to build. They the, where our transformers in this country are built are South Korea and Germany. Um, so through a cyber attack, it, it's, it's not so much the risk of one of them going down, uh, the, the Washington Post released data a while back that if you, if you basically lost nine of the 2,000 or 3,000, it, it would do a nationwide blackout. So it's not, imagine, it's, it's not a problem of losing one of them. It's a problem of multiple high-voltage transformers going down. 
And if you're talking about EMP attack or solar flare, we're losing probably most, if not all of them. And the idea that you're going to get a product, we replace about 12 transformers a year right now in this country. And uh, so we're going to send an order to South Korea and Germany to say, hey, you know, you normally build 12 of these a year for us, and uh, we need 3,000. We need them tomorrow. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Yeah. So you're looking at at least a year before the first ones start rolling out into the country. Now, I'm, I'm sure they'll be able to fix some minor areas. Uh, you know, government locations may, may end up getting ma magically have power uh, not long after the, the grid Shocking. comes down. But for you and I, <laughs> you know, we're going to be without power for a very long time. And that's the key. And that's the big thing is the American people don't realize this is even a threat. They don't realize, they think that, you know, yeah, you know, the, the grid's not protected. Someone may break it and it may take, you know, a couple of days or a week to fix it. And that's kind of the danger with Venezuela and what happened in Ukraine. These were very short-term issues that were done by cyber attacks and they were designed for short-term, they, they weren't designed to destroy their these countries' electric grid. Russia, when they attacked Ukraine and whoever attacked Venezuela, um, these were designed to cause problems in that country. They were not designed to destroy the country. So, uh, you know, an outside actor attacking our electric grid, uh, if they if they grow the cojones to do that, they're probably not going to do it on a minor level. They're gonna they're gonna they're gonna really they're gonna really take it down. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Jonathan, I mean, really, it, there's, the, there's the event, right? There's the attack on a power grid or there's the collapse of a power grid, but it's really about the after effects after that. And watching things really fall apart in Venezuela, I'm really alarmed how fast it actually happens. I mean, um, we talk about how it, it can take 12 to 18 months for these massive power you know, transformers to be built. And former CIA director Wolsey claimed that, you know, basically that was what kept him up at night, that 90% of the U.S. population would be dead within the first year if we had a breakdown of our electrical grid. And this is a, it's a pretty shocking claim. And I guess, you know, Venezuela is a good opportunity for us to really look at, you know, what actually happens, um, like, you know, put this theory to the test. So in your observations so far, because I know this is something, I mean, I'm, I'm on your newsletter and I know oftentimes you'll put out like, this is what's happening within our own government with the electrical grid. I mean, you're looking for those, here are the weak areas we have, here's how to prepare. So, um, have you, what factors do you see rolling out as expected in the country um, that would also be areas that we would need to consider in our own planning? Well, you see a lot of chaos on the streets. You see a lot of people wandering around. Obviously, the the ability to get food and gasoline and and and, and different things that you need to to survive off of it makes it a lot harder to get those things. But the big factor that a lot of people don't really see is it's similar, but it's also a lot different because Venezuela is still receiving aid. Uh, Maduro is still feeding people to, to a general degree. Uh, there's still f some food available, right? Uh, but Venezuela is a small country. A lot of times people will use Venezuela, what happened in Haiti, um, the Ukraine situation where the electric grid came down. You, you can't really compare these situations because in all these situations you had people that came to the rescue. You had people that came to help. You had aid organizations, whether it be the Red Cross or the UN. Somebody's coming to help feed people that are hungry. In America, if they were to take down America's electric grid, we're talking about 350 million people across a massive landmass. 
Hmm. There's, there's just absolutely no way to feed or distribute food among the people without electricity. There's no interstate trucking. There's no rail system with trains. There's no way to get the food from the coast. If there were ships that came with food, there's nobody to get that food across the country and distribute it rationally. There's no communication networks. There's no way to, to know who needs what, where If that happens in America. There, there's, there's, there's no one coming to the rescue. That's the big difference. So in Venezuela, we're talking about four days without electricity, and you see how ugly and how bad it got. Um, and, and the big question is, is you don't know what to believe. I mean, depending on whose report during the reporting in Venezuela, you're getting completely different reports from Fox News, from CNN, from New York Times, from Zero Hedge, from Drudge. It depends on where you get your news from. And you should be getting it from multiple sources. Completely different stories are being painted. Completely. One, one's talking about all the, the, the small children that are dying in the hospital. The other one's saying that there's no children dying in the hospital. Not, not, no, no, it's just hard to believe. I don't know, Jeff, if you saw the video of that uh, woman that was carrying her 19-year-old child who, who weighed something like 25 pounds, completely starved to death. Uh, the child had other issues. But, I mean, she was walking from hospital to hospital, and her child died in her arms. You know, and it, you look at the video and the images and I mean, it just breaks your heart. I mean, it looked like she was carrying a Holocaust survival around. It's just, it's heartbreaking uh, what's going on over there. And, and, it, and it happens really fast. It really does. But on the flip side of that, it's also getting fixed really fast, which to me leads me to believe it was more of a warning shot across the bow than it was somebody trying to destroy them. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, one of the most interesting parts of this whole thing, I think, and, and the things that um, that you see on the news and, and really rolling out is always the people factor. So, yeah, there's there's like, OK, food, water. I mean, we've seen, um, you know, there's when there's no water. I mean, people take for granted, like even just water treatment. People were literally taking water out of sewage plants and trying to filter that like water was just it's a scarcity. And of course, you need that kind of thing. Right. So when resources are low. That's where we see all like the, the people factor happening, right? Looters, protests happening because the government's not doing enough to protect us. And so now you have the government versus the people. Um, these are things that we just don't, we don't think about. Um, you know, gangs have taken over neighborhoods just in order to monopolize resources that are, and then it really is kind of like survival of the fittest. And, um, you know, that's still always to me the most scariest thing is like, okay, Food and water, I can prepare for. Um, for those people that are, you know, are preparing for it, there are ways around that. Maybe that's going to be the kind of resources you get in. But what people just are not um, prepared for how people change when you have a 19-year-old who looks like a Holocaust victim, and you're trying to just help your family survive. And it's just, uh, it's really, you're right. It really is sad to watch. And and uh, well, that's why we're here to make sure this doesn't happen to uh, to the people that are listening as well. So, so listen, everybody, we've been talking with Jonathan Hollerman of griddownconsulting.com about preparedness lessons that we can all take away from the Venezuela grid down collapse. And of course, we have a lot more coming up, including little known services and resources that most people take for granted that could literally disappear overnight with the collapse of our own electrical infrastructure. Also, beyond food and water, the other preps that you should consider in your off-the-grid survival plan and your most critical next steps right now to be able to sleep with confidence that you and your family will be 100% prepared when the lights go out and they stay out. All that and more coming right up, but first, check out this special message. 
In any disaster, crisis, or attack, your life and the life of those you love could solely rest on the survival gear you've acquired. Do you have the proper gear to protect you from the threats you'll face? Whether it's preparing your home against the destruction and mayhem of a city in chaos, or you're bugging out to a safer location when a natural disaster forces you from your home, the supplies you have right now could ensure your survival or seal your fate. Don't take the risk. Claim your free copy of our exclusive guide, Survival Gear Secrets, at survivalgearsecrets.com and discover the seven-phase survival gear plan every family must prepare for or face the consequences. Five no-bullshit warning signs that a collapse is headed your way, so you're already in action long before your neighbors even know what hit them and how to know exactly when it's safer to stay at home and shelter in place, or get in the family bug out mobile and get the hell out of Dodge. Your fellow citizens may be fine with sleeping in a crowded stadium waiting for FEMA to hand them a granola bar, juice box, and a blankie, but you know that no one can protect your family better than you can if you're properly prepared with the right supplies and equipment to ensure your survival. Don't wait until it's too late. Find out what's missing from your survival gear plan by grabbing your free copy of Survival Gear Secrets now at www.survivalgearsecrets.com. And now, back to our show. Okay, we're back with Jonathan Hollerman of griddownconsulting.com, talking about ways that we can all learn how to be better prepared for a complete collapse of our electrical grid using recent events in Venezuela's national crisis, putting it under the microscope. Now, we've got a lot more to get to, so let's go ahead and jump right back in. Uh, our, Jonathan, I, I've personally seen what it looks like, um, you know, just being in combat when, a, when chaos grips a city, when there is no infrastructure, there's no rule of law. Um, it is complete chaos. And, you know, when we're looking at, um, at the Venezuela grid down collapse, what are some things in the daily life of Venezuelans that would be mirrored in, in a nation like ours um, without an electrical grid? You know, in other words, what are, what are some of the things that we, we really take for granted that we just don't realize we wouldn't have without electricity? Oh, um, comparing and contrasting America to Venezuela is, is tough. Every aspect of human life in America revolves around electricity. Every aspect: food, water, heat, air conditioning, um, your your cars, drive, being able to, to drive around and, and access to gasoline, your access to information, the internet, the radio, the TV. People aren't going to know what's going on, what's happening because they don't have power to to power these information sources. Uh, today, Americans live with information at your fingertips you can find out the secrets of civilization by saying hey google to your phone so it's taking all of that away that fast from the american people i believe it's going to be way worse here than in other countries because in these other countries a lot of times especially in third world countries i hear all the time well that's that's a third world country well first of all venezuela wasn't a third world country 15 20 years ago they were a very wealthy country yeah um but even if you do use the example of third world countries, those people have some life experience um, on living without electricity. Most of them had didn't have electricity 30, 40 years ago in a lot of cases. Whereas America, we've had 100 years here with electricity. Even your grandparents probably lived with electricity. So it's radically different when you take that away from the Americans here who rely on it 100%. They don't know how to live without it. Um, then if you take it away from an, uh, another culture that maybe isn't quite as dependent on electricity as we are here in America. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it really is kind of like a lot. There's a huge laundry list of things that we could probably go down of what we'd, you know, take for granted. I think some of the things that I've seen in the pictures coming out of Venezuela is like hospitals. You know, people are still going to get, in fact, in, in that kind of an environment where you, you know, sewage plants are going to go down, water treatment plants. So more people are going to be, they're going to get sick. Um, and the medical care that's required to be able to keep them healthy or bring them, you know, bring you or a family member back to good health. Like their people are stacking up inside of these hospitals in Venezuela and they're just trying to keep kids on life support, you know, elderly um, that have medical devices that require electricity, all of that stuff. But you bring up something really important, you know, even just I mean, people, you're not going to be able to get to a gas pump and be able to get fuel, which means that you're not going to be able to escape that, that scenario. So it really calls into question, like a lot of the, the things we talk about with, should I stay? Should I go? Do you have a plan B survival retreat set up? I mean, I know this is stuff that you deal with people in, in helping them plan out you know, where can I go if here is no longer safe? But if people are prepared ahead of time, if they're just flying by the seat of their pants and there's no gas and you waited too long, guess what? You're, you're not going to escape anywhere unless you're going to throw your, your rucksack on your back and just start humping down, down the road to go find someplace safer, which is an option. But, um, but again, it it just calls, you know, it just really brings out how important it is to plan ahead of time. Sure. Um, So go ahead, go ahead. So yeah, I'd love to jump in there because that's a it's a common theme that I hear a lot in the preparedness community, and it comes from people that have never had your experience. They've never uh, seen hungry and starving people. They've never, in my case, in Sear, worked with taking people's food away and, and and having food taken away from yourself, and just watching how that affects the the mental capacity of, of human beings. We're talking at a short time period, so. We, we have to keep going back. We're talking four days here. The, 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 we're talking four to five days without power in Venezuela. Okay. Four to five days without power in the United States would look similar. I think it would be worse. But most hospitals have 72 hours of diesel backup power. Uh, the United States military, on average, has 48 hours backup power for their military bases. Um, you take this thing out, and so, you know, after that initial three-day, four-day period, you know, the, the people are going to scramble. There's still some infrastructure up. They're still able to communicate. They get things done. Um, but the longer that stretches, if you start, if you take that four days and you make, make it a week now, you make it two weeks, I, I think once two, that two-week mark hits, it's going to be hard to come back from that. I think things are going to be so ugly. I mean, the hospitals are going to be completely shut down. And, I mean – Law, rule of law is going to be completely non-existent. Uh, hospitals, you're not. What doctor is going to stay there when there's no bandages, there's no electricity, there's people lined out the door, there's nothing they can do to help these people. They don't have electricity to help them. They don't have the supplies to help them. Same with the police. How long are the police going to keep showing up for work when there's rioting and looting going on in town? And, you know, their squad cars, all the squad cars are out of gas because the gas pumps are empty now. It's just at some point it's all going to shut down and that's the danger. And that's the reality that most Americans can't wrap their head around. Yeah. And that's where I always go back to is understanding the threat before you make a plan of action. You need to understand the threat. If you're only preparing for two or three days of a grid down or, you know, a financial collapse or pandemic. Yeah. Stay in town, stay in your suburban house, ride it out, you know, 
fight off the zombies, whatever you want to believe, okay? But if we're talking a situation where we lose the grid for a year, you you can't stay in town. You can't stay. You can't be surrounded by thirty thousand people a month in when when nobody's eating anything for weeks, and you have food in your basement, and you think you're going to keep that a secret from the from the rest of the hungry start. You think after two months they're not going to notice you're the, you're the only one not getting skinny. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> I I don't buy it. So uh, you know, yeah. I, I'm not this. I'm not a lone wolf guy. I don't say take your rucksack and just hit the open road and live off the road. That's a terrible idea uh, also, but I'll be honest with you. I, I would do that before riding it out in town surrounded by millions because it's going to go bad. If you stay in the, the cities, even small towns, it's going to go bad. It's going to go really bad. So r- real quick, I do want to do a, a short plug here, Jeff. Yeah. Um, every single person that's listening to this conversation, conversation between us, and finds it interesting. It's very vital. People ask me all the time what books I recommend, what books I'm reading. Um, I, I really don't ever have an answer. <laughs> but there's a book that came out here recently that every single person in this country should be required reading. Okay, So it's called uh, The Dark Secrets of SHTS Survival. It's by Selko Begovich. He's a guy that lived through the, uh, the Balkan Wars uh, the breakup of Yugoslavia back in the 90s. He got stuck in a town. Uh, he was, and he talks about he wished he could have got out of town before it got surra- you know, surrounded. He lived through a, a small village almost a year without electricity, no food. Uh, they were drinking. The, the, the stuff that this guy went through just would blow people's minds. Uh, the, the reality of taking a life of the gangs that took over the town and how they ruled every aspect of human life there. And they were, they were eating, you know, food with worms in it. It's just, it's unbelievable. It's a, such an eye opening exercise. His name is Selko Bogovich. And that's the reality. That's the truth. Most Americans today, when they think of this type of scenario, they think of Hollywood. They think of, you know, The Walking Dead or some post-apocalyptic movie that Hollywood put out where everyone's wearing makeup and no one's dirty. And um, it's just, it's not reality. It really isn't. Yeah, I just got that book actually and um, haven't read it yet, but I I just got it last week and uh, I've heard a lot of people talking about it. So I'm looking forward to checking it out. You know, when it comes to preparing though, you know, um, for, for like a grid down collapse, I mean, of course there's the major categories, you know, food, water, having a way, having a way to, to filter water, get water. Um, I think that's more important actually than even like storing water. Storing water will last you a little while, but yeah, you definitely need something to be able to manufacture your own water. But yeah, I'm, I'm also concerned about like, um, like what are the things that you think people might be missing, especially when we're talking about no electricity or something, but are there other things outside of being able to, um, you know, stockpile some food, stockpile some water, but have a way to to be able to um, create more of those things. Um, what are some of the things that you think maybe in, in, in your working with people that they um, that's the most left out areas of their, of their survival plan when it comes to like their resources, supplies, gear, and things like that? Um, there's a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, that's what I do. I mean, I fly around the country. What are the three biggest ones you think? What are the three biggest ones that, you know, just make you like kind of scratch your head and like, like you've got to get this right. Okay. So a couple of them, uh, the water one you mentioned already. I mean, I see people all the time with, with 50 gallon barrels in their basement, just stacked to the ceiling. I'm like, 
the amount of money you spent. Yeah. You know, buy buy a big Berkey, buy some, you know, filtration units and take up a lot less space in your basement. Uh, so you can provide your own water supply. Uh, another aspect of the water supply is a lot of times people at their retreats have a single source of off-grid water. And the, you know, you, you know, the adage, uh, one is none, two is one, right? So it's always best to have a backup plan for how you're going to supply your retreat with water uh, and not rely on a single off-grid situation. Probably the biggest issue I see is food. Um, there was a pretty big um, lawsuit that was just settled with Wise Long-Term Food Company. And I've been harping about this for years. I've never named anybody by names because I never wanted to be taken to task. But uh, the long-term food companies, most retreats that I, that I visit and I go through, 90% of them have half the food they think they do. When you actually put the calories down on a spreadsheet and you figure out how many calories each member of your family needs using a basal metabolic calculator based on your height, weight, sex, age, um, all these big food companies sell these one-year plans. People are buying these one-year plans, six-month plans for four people. Almost full stop, every single company selling those plans is selling you about 40% of the food you're actually going to need. So on average, they have like eight to 900 calories per day. And that's a starvation diet yeah. for most for most people. So that's a big one is don't get caught up in these buying food on serving sizes. Make sure you're buying it based on the amount of calories in that food plan. A lot of these companies were hiding that information. You had to contact them to directly to find out how many calories were in that plan. So hopefully with this lawsuit, some of that stuff will change. Some of these companies are going to see that uh, Wise lost that or they didn't. They they, they don't admit that they lost. And uh, they settled out of court, but I think uh, hopefully it should be a, an eye-opening experience for some of the other companies. And, and the, the official stance by Wise, and this was great because I, I said the same thing in my book. The official stance was, well, you can't really sue us because the collapse hasn't happened and you haven't had to rely on that food yet and have it affect you. So technically you haven't been harmed yet. Because the collapse hasn't happened, you you know where you've been forced to use that food. So that that was their defense: is that well, you can't really sue us because it hasn't happened yet. Not even admitting that it's true what was happening. So uh, I thought that was pretty shady, but hmm. you yeah. know, it is what it is. But it, but it's a good. But you make a good point. Like, um, don't think that you've checked the box off on one year of survival food being stockpiled. When you know that you've actually got like six months, essentially, like you're you're going to need double because I, I have noticed that also what what companies are calling one year of food is really meant to you know quote unquote supplement other food that you have available is what I've been told sometimes and so um, yeah you've really got to kind of stack it up especially in I mean you know this just from because you you in Sears school put people into that mode of where the, you've got their adrenaline up, you've got them, you know, they're, they're stressed out, they're anxious and all this stuff's happening. And that consumes, stress consumes calories. So um, while you might not be as active, you're not going to be out there maybe playing basketball in your, in your front yard as much. However, um, just the anxiety and stress and even some of the physical things that you'll have to do just to, um, you know, kind of maintain the home or your place or go out and look for supplies all of that's going to take calories. And so that's a really good point. I think a lot of people here listening should really reassess what their, their needs are um, for food. So um, really, that's a really good point there. Um, Jonathan, everybody, like whenever, whenever it comes to any sort of like a disaster, I mean, I think that what, what holds a lot of people back are just 
the procrastination because there's so much to do. Um, and and I real, I'm a firm believer that just, you know, baby steps is, you know, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. And so I really try to get people like, look, um, the 80, that 80, 20 rule applies where, you know, if you just take the most important steps first to be able to cover yourself and then you can kind of fine tune from there. So in this type of a scenario that we're talking about with like a, a, a grid down collapse, what would you say right now are, are like the most, the most critical, like vital first steps that somebody should take in having a little bit more confidence that they would be better prepared if, if that were to happen to them? Sure. The first thing I would recommend is don't buy a single thing for three months. Um, I, I come with the opposite mindset. I think information is more important than stuff uh, in, in most cases. So the problem I see is a person, and most of the people I work with are fairly wealthy individuals. They will read a news story or they'll read a book like one second after my, one of my books, and it'll really freak them out. They're like, holy cow, this is this is a reality. This could happen. I need to do something. And they'll just go out. And in my case, with people that have money, they go out, they just start spending a bunch of money on stuff. And then I've got to come in there and, you know, do a survival retreat analysis. I'm like, yeah, you have 200 acres, but you built your cabin, you know, 200 yards from the road and, you know, you can see your house from the road. So there's a lot of things that, um, the point I'm trying to make is you need to understand the threat. You need to develop a plan of action before you start spending money on this stuff. And so going back, my book, Survival Theory, uh, it's a full-length preparedness guide, but it, it's theoretical because it really explains the threat and, and why you should make certain decisions, when you should make them, and uh, the, the background behind them. The book I just mentioned by Selko Begovich, The Dark Secrets of SHTF Survival, those two books, um, there's a book called The Lucifer Effect by uh, The Lucifer Effect by Philip Zimbardo. He's a world-renowned psychologist that studied human desperation and things like this. You need to study this and understand it because 90% of the preparedness industry, um, they're just getting it wrong on, on a lot of their recommendations. The top five bug out bags. I, I see all these lists, the top 10 this, the top five this, and I just, for who, you know? So yeah. I hear this all the time, the perfect bug out bag list. I'm like, for who? Bob's bug out bag in Arizona is gonna should look completely different than Steve's bug out bag in Pennsylvania because of the topographical environment. So how can you compare the two? Um, so that, that's an issue is, so the big things I would say is understand what human desperation, starvation looks like. And by all means, if you're preparing for a minor, a hurricane, tornado, a small financial collapse, yeah, make your preps in town, I don't care. But if you're preparing for a long-term collapse scenario, you have to get out of mass population centers. Zero, period. I mean, there's zero debate on this from, from my standpoint. Um, you, you know, I, there's these sites, urban prepping this and that, and, you know, how to hide your growing your garden in, in suburbia. You can't hide, if you're growing food, you ain't going to be able to hide that from your neighbors. Are you kidding me? So a lot of this stuff is from people that just don't understand the threat. Last point I would make on this is um, I, I have a fictional series called EMP, Equipping Modern Patriots. It's three, it, it's, it's three books long. When I first started seven or eight years ago, there was it's a very niche market. There wasn't a lot of people writing in survival and preparedness fiction. And so what's happened is there's software programs today that take Amazon's algorithms and their sales figures and, and the the software is able to combine that 
So what's happening is there's a lot of authors over the last four or five years, struggling authors that are in big markets like romance. It's very hard for a new author out of college to come out and write the next best-selling romance. So what a lot of these authors are doing, and there's lots of YouTube videos on it, so you can go watch it. These authors are coming, and they're finding niche markets, you know, uh, vampire love stories or, you know, <laughs> alien romance. And they're finding these niche markets, and survival and preparative fiction is one of them. And what I'm, what I'm seeing is, is probably 90% of the new authors entering the survival preparative fiction, they're not preppers. A lot of them are pretty left-wing, you know, mentality and their ideas on what to do and where to go. They're just, they're just, they have no idea what they're talking about. And so it's crafting a lot of thought process for a lot of people, though, even if they don't realize. And even if they're like, oh, I'm going to suspend reality and just read through this. Um, it's changing your, your thought process. And that's like 90% of it at this point. So you need to understand the threat and you need to make sure you vet who you're getting your information from. Mm -hmm. You need to vet. And in your industry, you could probably say the same thing. You, you know, anybody with a camera and some marketing skills can become the next YouTube expert on whatever. I see it all the time, even in my industry, people that I'm like, you know, what gives you the right to tell me this information? People don't ask questions if they have a big following. It's it's a problem today uh, with information and knowing what to believe and making sure you're you're getting information from from valid sources and not just some guy that's making a quick buck off you. Yeah, amen. And we've been getting that request actually from people like that are within our audience. Just um, their biggest frustration is just that there's there's so many there's so many things to prepare for. There's so much information out there. But one person says one thing and another person says exactly the opposite. And so people Jeff, I would say, yeah. there's more misinformation online today Absolutely. than there is information. Absolutely. There really is. By, by far, there's more misinformation than information. Yeah, totally. I absolutely. And then, and even um, like I've got some friends that are, you know, former, you know, Green Berets and um, some really, some people that really know what they're talking about. They've been over in the desert, like they've seen what, you know, lack of infrastructure does the people, they, they, they really realize the human dynamics of it as well as how the resources affect everything. But just because somebody has, you know, was a Navy SEAL or something like that doesn't necessarily even mean that they understand true survival. They might know tactics and things like that when it comes to the people part of it, but it is really confusing. I understand people's frustration out there about finding, um, finding real information that you can count on. Um, so uh, listen, everybody, um, actually, Jonathan brings up a really good point here um, of how to make, um, because there are some really good fiction uh, novels out there with the purpose of actually teaching at the same time. Uh, Jonathan has a series on that. And um, that's, I'm really glad you brought that up because it's an entertaining way to also be better prepared. But it's coming from somebody that, um, if you've ever, listen, I've, I've told everybody out there before, get um, disaster, um, uh, the disaster theory, that book that Jonathan put out there. I mean, it's, I don't, I don't know how long it took you to put that thing together, but it really is kind of chock full of, of really solid information in there. Um, so it, to me, it's one of the, it's one of the must haves for people's library. I'm not just saying that because you're on here. I mean, it's, it's, I've been handed books before and they just, you know, some of it, I'm just shaking my head and I can't even read it anymore. So, so listen, everybody, um, as good as information this, as this is, um, this is just the beginning of it. Um, this is a really good opportunity to be able to look at another country and, and learn from their mistakes and what they're going through. 
but it's also a really good opportunity for you to look, ask yourself the same questions of if my local hospital wasn't there, are you on some sort of a, a medical device that requires electricity? Um, if the if your refrigerator no longer worked anymore, how much of your food that's in your house right now would actually be edible? How long would it last you? There's just all sorts of questions that you can pull out of this. I hope that this this interview really helped um, help you at least come up with some questions to ask yourself of how you and your personal plan uh, could be put together. And for more information, definitely go out and check out Jonathan's books as well as his website where you will see some links over to his books from there as well. So go check it out over at www.griddownconsulting.com. And until our next Modern Combat and Survival broadcast, this is Jeff Anderson saying prepare, train, and survive. This has been Modern Combat and Survival. Survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Modern Combat and Survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival.